Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's show, we'll first be featuring Radio Free Acton's premier RFA report segment with Anne-Marie Schieber-Dykstra, an award-winning reporter and previous anchor with WIT TV in Grand Rapids. On this first part of RFA Reports, Anne explores ways in which Christian healthcare centers are offering better care for affordable prices. Then on our cultural commentary segment, Upstream, Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Henry Payne, editorial cartoonist and opinion writer on the newly released film, Chappaquiddick. So without further ado, let's listen to the first segment. At first glance, Christian healthcare centers looks like any doctor's office. But if you look more closely, things are different. The waiting room is nearly empty and quiet. There are no patients lined up at a desk filling out forms. And then there's this big space behind the reception desk. It's our educational room. They had eight people working in here, and all they did was paperwork for insurance reimbursement. That's Mark Blocker. Nine months ago, he and two colleagues moved into this medical space to create their vision of a healthcare utopia. Here's what it would mean for doctors. You know, the doctor shows up at 8 o'clock in the morning. He sees 8 to 12 patients instead of 20 to 25. He gives the time that each patient needs to provide as best quality of care as he can. Um, goes home at 5 o'clock and has dinner with his family and doesn't have three hours of paperwork. What Blocker is talking about is direct primary care, a burgeoning healthcare model where members pay a flat fee for unlimited primary care. The catch is that it accepts no insurance. Blocker and his partner, medical doctor Jeff Wu, saw how insurance was negatively affecting primary care. We have drifted tremendously away from the concept of patient care and had unfortunately begun to focus solely on disease management. And rather than focusing on keeping people at their best, the economics of healthcare really allowed people to profit off of those who were at their worst. The disease management approach has become even more acute under the Affordable Care Act. Essentially, medical providers are rewarded on metrics, things like cholesterol levels, blood pressure, weight, now, while these biometric data points do affect health outcomes, they didn't really touch upon that which we as individuals consider to constitute a quality of life. When people uh, see a physician today, because, you know, and I'm not blaming the doctors. These doctors have to stay in business. They have to see 25 patients a day to do it. You got five to eight minutes. You don't have time to counsel somebody about their marriage. You don't have time to ask questions about their spiritual wellness. All that documenting and coding takes time and money. To pay for it, doctors typically have to increase their patient loads. Taking the time to ask about a patient's spiritual wellness is not in the code book. See, doctors today are trained not to do things that they can't be reimbursed for. So the partners figured if they eliminate the insurance claims, they could bring down their costs and offer better care for affordable prices. For $80 a month, members could get unlimited time to see a medical provider for not only primary care and mental health counseling, but other discounted services. Because it has wiped out the middleman, Christian Healthcare Centers offers discounted imaging, prescriptions, and lab work. 
one member was facing a $2,300 bill for a 90-day supply of an anti-seizure drug she needed to drive. Our doctor, because he has time and he's advocating for that patient, he says, well, let me check on our source for that medication. And we got it for $15.49. Since opening nine months ago, Christian Healthcare Centers has attracted 1,100 members. Because the center offers only primary care, members need coverage for hospitalization and specialty care. Many members have insurance or belong to something called a health share program, where a group of people join together to pay each other's medical bills. My name is Leah Bradley, and I'm a patient here at Christian Healthcare Centers. Leah Bradley and her husband are self-employed and were facing more than $16,000 a year for conventional coverage required by law. We thought, this is insane. We can't, what's the point of having insurance at that point to avoid a tax penalty? They joined a health share program and DPC was perfect for their routine office visits. And we thought, well, we like to budget our health care more than have it spring up on us. And so the membership feature of this organization was really appealing. If people are educated and understand what the heck this is, they tend to support it. That's Dr. Philip Askew. He's been tracking the growth of DPC since 2014. Back then, he counted 125 pure DPC practices by Christian health centers. Today, there are 790. And while DPC is relatively new in terms of business models, he feels confident that the practice is here to stay. Because if you overextend yourself, then the service you provide starts to suffer and people are going to leave. So you get this constant feedback about whether you're doing things the right way. His organization, DPC Frontier, is working to get Congress to pass the Primary Care Enhancement Bill, something that will allow patients to use health savings accounts to pay for DPC. He's hopeful that with demand, insurance companies will offer a bigger menu of plans for specialty care. This year, business luminaries Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase announced they were going to join forces to find a better way to provide health care for their combined one million U.S. employees. Mark Blocker is confident that direct primary care will be part of the picture. Primary care has suffered horribly under Obamacare. We've had 20% of the primary care doctors that have left medicine. That's why Buffett and Diamond and Bezos, you know, and Cook at Apple are saying, we're going to be done with all that nonsense. And they've got deep enough pockets to go out and actually do it for their employees. Christian Health Centers says it has interest to expand in 14 other states. For Radio Free Acton, this is Anne-Marie Schieber-Dykstra. Francis has frequently critiqued capitalism, most famously in his encyclical Laudato Si, on care for our common home. But is it true that a capitalist society cannot also be a society that cares for the environment and the poor? Join us at the Acton Institute on May 17 to hear Professor Robert Waples cover the strengths of capitalism from an economist's point of view, and then detail what Pope Francis sees as its failures. What can economists learn from the Pope? And what, in turn, can the Pope learn from economists? 
You can register for this event at actin.org events. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Upstream, the podcast that places culture upstream from politics. And this week we're going to kind of mix it up just a little bit because you can't help talk about politics when you're talking about the film Chappaquiddick. My guest via a phone conversation is Henry Payne, the political cartoonist for the Detroit News, and you might have also seen some of them on National Review Online. And he's also an automotive writer for the Detroit News, and spent a good deal of his career as a beat writer for Scripps Howard in the Washington, D.C. area. But in discussing the film Chappaquiddick, we're going to try and steer clear of partisanship on this and focus mainly on how the film is more or less a Shakespearean tragedy, and even to some extent an American tragedy along the lines of, say, The Great Gatsby, where we see how the lust for power and for retaining that power is very, very strong indeed and works against the grain of a flourishing society and uh, virtuous living. So without further ado, I bring you my previous conversation with Henry Payne. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Bruce, uh, nice to be with you. Well, terrific. We're going to be talking about the film Chappaquiddick. For those readers who or listeners who are not uh, up to speed on what happened in 1969 in Chappaquiddick, uh, this this was the uh, 1969 was like the annus horribilis of uh, American history. We had uh, the Manson murders. There was Chappaquiddick, but then there was also uplifting aspects. Uh, I'm I'm thinking. For me, a, a rock music band, Woodstock, occurred. Uh, but at the end of the year, there was also the uh, the debacle at Altamont. And then uh, there was um, other things that, that happened uh, in that year. And uh, this is uh, kind of the backdrop for the film, which is the, the moon landing. And I recall in 1969 getting all the newspapers that I could lay my hands on uh, to get coverage of the moon landing because I was a space freak. And uh, the inside front page would have an article on Mary Jo Kopechny and Teddy Kennedy. And uh, it was like, wow, this is, this, this is uh, kind of getting buried by uh, other very, very big results. But give us a little bit of background on what happened at, at Chappaquiddick in 1969. Yeah, well, it's um, a, a famous incident, uh, obviously, that de- derailed uh, at least briefly presidential aspirations of Ted Ted Kennedy went to the heart of uh, the Kennedy family um, for which Ted Kennedy was was the last uh, the remaining best hope for Kennedy in the White House of course Ted Kennedy uh, the younger brother of uh, JFK who had been assassinated of Robert Kennedy who had been assassinated and so Ted Kennedy was uh, was on course to uh, run for president I believe in 1972 1969 was making preparations to do just that, and then uh, this very unfortunate incident on Chappaquiddick Island, a uh, remote Chappaquiddick Island, uh, where the Kennedys, uh, where Ted Kennedy went with a number of campaign staffers for a party, and wound up uh, in a in a car with Mary Jo Kopechnik, a longtime Kennedy staffer, and they ran off the bridge on Chappaquiddick Island, and uh, Mary Jo Kopechnik died. Ted Kennedy took about ten hours to report the incident. You know the, the the incident has never been 
really adequately explained uh, because so few people knew uh, what happened, but it, but it certainly uh, put a hole in Ted Kennedy's uh, political aspirations at the time and has been a subject of fascination ever since. How adequately do you think the, the, the film Chapter Critic deals with it? It's, it's directed by John Kern, it's written by Taylor Allen and Andrew Logan, and uh, you've seen it, you, you just saw it last weekend, I, I saw it uh, on opening day, but um, do, you, do you think that uh, it, it, it captures adequately the historical elements of, of what actually happened in 69? Yeah, it's, a, you know, it's really compelling, Bruce, uh, um, because I, you know, it's 50 years on. I, I, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me uh, that a couple of screenwriters have, um, have, have gone back and, and basically did investigative journalism here in order to, to try to get to the bottom of an incident that's pretty well known in the, in the political, uh, I should say, the body politic. So it allows a couple of screenwriters to come in 50 years later and, and uh, do some interesting journalism. So, you know, and, and you deal with any Hollywood film, there's dramatic license um, uh, throughout the film. You know, in, in, in reading, going back, reading accounts at the time, Time Magazine famously tried to uh, do some investigative reporting on Chappaquiddick, and it matches up pretty good good with the film, and I think will whet people's appetite to learn more. The film stars Jason Clark, who uh, listeners might recall from Zero Dark Thirty, a terrific actor. I think he does an amazing job as uh, someone who is has been brought up as the least favored son in a dynasty, but he's the last best hope for his father, who is portrayed by Bruce Dern, who always plays a wonderful bad man, even though he only has one word of dialogue in the in the entire film. And uh, he he shows how claustrophobic it is that he is he wants to please his father, but he knows that he just does not have the charisma and talents and perhaps maybe even intellect of his older brothers. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's an excellent performance. I mean, J- Jason Clark uh, really disappears into the role of Ted Kennedy. Looks like him. Um, you know, I think really fills out the the, the character and and uh, and does a nice job of giving uh, Ted Kennedy uh, three three dimensions. I mean, uh, he's he's um, he's just killed a young lady, so you know it's hard to have sympathy. Uh, for him as a character, and yet um, the film does a nice job of showing uh, the expectations that are on his shoulders in that family. Very demanding father. Uh, this is a family uh, in, in which the expectation was that you're, you're supposed to be president. Before you go into that, I, I just want to get one quote in from uh, our previous conversation that you and I had about the film, and that was a, a quote from Sonny Bunch of the Washington Free Beacon, who compared Teddy Kennedy uh, or at least uh, Jason Clark's performance of Teddy Kennedy in, in Chappaquiddick as Fredo of the Kennedy clan. And for, for Godfather <laughs> and Godfather 2 fans, I think that, that that's pretty telling. But anyway, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, yes, uh, Bruce Dern, who um, I think that it's a nice little casting flourish because Bruce Dern has been known since day one, pretty much. Um, you know, he's had a, a wonderful career stemming from the early 1960s as playing uh, a man who is psychologically unhinged and uh, possesses the great power of uh, or capacity for tremendous evil. I mean, this is the guy who killed John Wayne in The Cowboys. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, he's, uh, as you say, just has one line in the movie, and yet uh, 
he's a he's a he's a uh, he's a powerful character in the in the film and uh uh you know you you can feel you, you know you can feel his intimidation of uh of Jason Clark as Ted Kennedy and the expectations that uh that Joe Kennedy has has put on his son um uh, Jason Allen is one of the executive producers has, has publicly said that he was under pressure not to make this film uh, by uh, members of uh, presumably members of the Hollywood establishment and the Democratic Party, and yet they made it, and they made it uh, not not just with um, established actors like Jason Clark and Bruce Stern, but uh, some really nice uh, roles for for Ed Helms, for Jim Gaffigan, who are comedians who, who do really nice turns as serious uh, characters here as Joseph Gargan and, and uh, Markham. And then uh, uh, Kate Mara, uh, who you know plays a lovely, uh, understated role as Mary Jo uh, Kopechnik. So yeah, really interesting cast. Kate Mara has also been in House of Cards, which is probably the most cynical political piece of media uh, dramatization of the, the past you know 20 years, if not all time. And uh, Ed Helms and Jim Gaffigan, who are, especially Ed Helms, who plays Joe Gargan, Ted Kennedy's cousin, is the moral center of the film. And to have people, actors who are best known for their comedy, to portray how morality uh, being turned on its head here, uh, because you have Clancy Brown and Taylor Nichols, who play Robert McNamara and Ted Sorensen, are, are basically just a, a PR team looking to uh, spin this any which way they can, legally and in the press. And you have Ed Gar- or Joe Gargan, by Ed, played by Ed Helms, who is so totally mortified and disgusted by this. And his is the performance to really watch in this film, because the the... the, the the moral code that he transmits just through some of his gestures and his glances are are totally amazing, and I, I was thoroughly impressed with Ed Helms in this. You know, that's that's uh, that's a that's a brave move by by Helms. I mean, I, you know, an ambitious actor like Ed, Ed Helms, I think, is looking to uh, expand his uh, resume, is looking for roles like this uh, to make him more viable as an actor beyond just the uh, the comedic roles. Uh, that, that he's known for, but it's not an, an easy thing for for an actor to to take on a movie like this, uh, given the political implications. It certainly helps that Ted Kennedy uh, has passed away, but uh, even even 50 years beyond this incident, this is a this is a politically incorrect film. I, I guess I'm I'm going to step back a little bit from the partisanship of it, because this this could happen to any powerful political family on either side of the aisle. I, I think that what is actually being you know, broadcast here is this is a tragedy. A, a, a young woman died, and individuals uh, circled the wagons to protect a political career. And yeah. we, we, we see this all the time. And so th- this, is, this rises above partisanship, in, in my view, to something along the lines of the great Gatsby, or even if you want to go so far as Shakespearean tragedy. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and, and that's, that's what makes the, uh, the film, uh, powerful. I think, I mean, it's always a, a challenge, um, for, for Hollywood to, to, to make a, make a film about politics. I'm an auto guy. It's always a challenge to make a racing film and, uh, to get an audience beyond, 
just uh, just beyond the, the the core audience who, who loves auto racing, or in this case, the core audience that's caught up in uh, the political theater of Chappaquiddick or 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 any political scandal. So uh, uh, you know, your your description of it as a Shakespearean tragedy is a good one. Well, that's about all we have time for, uh, Henry Payne. I really want to thank you for being here today and. Uh, sharing your your historical expertise, your professional expertise, and uh, also your your opinions on what what I think is a very fine movie, and I think it warrants uh, far more publicity than than it has received. It resonates beyond the political base. It's a, it's it's really nicely done, and and uh, it's just nice to nice to get a tragedy like this addressed, not only uh, to put the historical record uh, straight, but also to give justice to folks like uh, the Kopechny family. Henry Payne is a political cartoonist for the Detroit News, an automotive writer for the Detroit News, a frequent contributor to National Review Online, and a, a personal friend. So uh, thank you so much, Henry. I look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. Thanks. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you next week. And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N where you can access Acton's official blog, bookshop, publication archives, and more. Lastly, if you have questions for the Acton Institute team that you would like answered in future segments of the podcast, leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.